Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. Let me go ahead and read this for us. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to start off by reading a quote from C.S. Lewis, because C.S. Lewis is awesome. He said, he once said, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. But the modern man, for the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge, God is in the dock. And, And Lewis says, this with a bit of sarcasm. Man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense, he is ready to listen to it. The trauma even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Now what Lewis meant by that is this sort of spiritual commentary on um, his time, but it's relevant to our time as well, showing us this ironic reversal of roles, right? Um, Finite creatures judging the infinite creator. And that's a, that's a valid point, and it's worth commenting on. But what should really strike us about our passage today is that God literally was put on trial by man. In real time and space, he really, literally, historically, stood in the dock, not on the judgment seat, but facing trial before human judges. And that makes this trial even more significant and worth commenting on. That God would stand literally in trial and be judged by man. Why? And here are three things I want to unpack for you about this trial, the significance of this trial. Okay, So that, that's the outline that's in your bulletin. One, that it happened. Two, why it had to happen. And three, why it matters to us that it happened. Okay, That it happened. Why it happened. Why it matters to us. That it happened, okay? So first point, that it happened. Uh, Take a look at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Now, uh, this piece of detail is here for a reason, okay? 
if you think about it, it seems like an excessive piece of detail. Jesus had been arrested. Some people are trying to, to, to execute him. Why give us this list of, long list of people? It's a short gospel as it is. Why include this piece of detail that people who held all these offices and high positions during this time were here? Because this is reiterating something that Mark has always been reiterating time and time again throughout his book, not just from chapter one, but all the way throughout the gospel. And that is, I'm writing a historical biography. I'm not writing some legendary tale. This is history I'm writing. Um, Craig Hazen, he's a professor in religious studies, and he, he used to be a scientist at Berkeley, and then he, his, he took a different turn in his interest later in life and started digging into the authenticity of the Gospels. And, and here's something he, he's written on the historical accuracy of the New Testament Gospels, like the Gospel of Mark. He says, quote, There's a resounding ring of authenticity in terms of what the Gospel says about law, politics, religions, social strata, and much more. It would be hard to get all of this right if the gospel writers had little or no contact with the time and the lands about which they were writing. It would be as if a person who had never set foot out of California were attempting to write a story about people living in Portugal 60 years ago. And the writer perfectly captured all the details of personal names of the day without the internet, without encyclopedia or libraries. It is exceedingly unlikely to match the real situation on the ground. Okay. When it comes to the reliability of the Gospel of Mark, and we have mentioned this, the particular eyewitness that Mark depended heavily on is the Apostle Peter. And, and Peter is, he, he and Mark were close companions during Peter's ministry. Peter was as close as it gets to the real situation on the ground. And, and he's mentioned in this very passage again today. So, so one of the reasons why serious historians today don't come out and argue Mark is historically unreliable, we should throw it out. It's because the original manuscript we have of Mark dates back to early second century or so, which indicates the original writing probably occurred even before then. Um, only decades after the book was written, we have the manuscripts. So, and between that time, that space of time, the original writing and the second century documents that we have, there's just not enough time for massive changes to take place and for people to not notice that for the text to be corrupted and for people to not call that out. Um, so anyone who argues that would have a hard time with um, this piece of history and actually all of history. So to take for another example, like Caesar's Gallic Wars, uh, that happened in 100 BC, 100 BC. But the earliest copy we have of that account is 900 AD, 1,000 year gap. But that's practically cemented in history. No one considers Caesar's Gallic Wars to be a myth or a legend. Nor do we do that with Plato or Aristotle, which their original writing dates back to 400 BC. Earliest copy is 900, 900 AD, a, a huge gap. And whereas the manuscripts of Gallic War from that period of time numbered to about three manuscripts, the manuscript we have, the New Testament Gospel, from that time, whether it's in fragments or larger chunks, numbers to about 5,000. So the historical preservation of, of the Gospels is, is really, historically, it's very exciting for this reason. Okay? It is so close to the actual events, so well attested, and so immediate to the eyewitnesses who are on the ground facing the real situation. And the details that Mark includes in his writing, time and time again, 
points us to the fact that this is not a legend, this is not made up, this is history. So in verse 1 it says, They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. That's quite a few people, right, that Mark is mentioning there. And if this was a fabricated account, that's the last thing you want to do is list actual people who were there. Because that just gives people opportunity to go corroborate things, corroborate a story with these people. Um, but Mark does this, does this time and time again so confidently because he's speaking as a biographer. He's speaking as a, as a historian who's writing something that's historically accurate. That's why he's mentioning specific titles, specific offices, specific people, the specific setting. Um, unlike you know, the Gnostic Gospels uh, that we don't put in the Bible that came much later and lack these historical elements. So, everything from this trial and on, you have to understand, happened in real time and real space. It is cemented in history, okay? The important thing that we need to realize here, first and foremost, is that it happened. It happened. And one of the other significance to this is, this has to put to bed the, the argument by other religions that Jesus was a prophet who was perhaps liked by many but criticized by some, he was ostracized, but he was not crucified. Okay, there, there are quite a few religions who argue that. Jesus was criticized, not crucified. Well, not if this trial happened. Because if you're put on trial and condemned with blasphemy, the only sentence you get from that is death. Okay, you don't, the Jewish people do not simply leave blasphemers with a verbal warning or like sort of a, a mean tweet or something like that. You get executed for this, okay? This is punishable by death. So if this trial happened, the execution happened. So in sum, it's important for us to realize that this happened, that Jesus of Nazareth really was arrested, he really was put on trial by the Jews, and really was crucified as a result of that. So there's that. That it happened. And once you establish that it happened, then it makes sense for us to then pursue the second point, which is why this had to happen. If we know that it happened, it's meaningful for us to consider why. Okay? Why did this happen? Um, first, recall the time in which this is taking place. Uh, Judas had only informed the, the authorities about Jesus' whereabouts in Gethsemane hours ago. Hours. Okay? Right after the Lord's Supper. And this trial was put together immediately after that. So very abruptly, right? Late into the night, very abruptly put together. And, and they're about to hold, regardless of that, this official Jewish trial before the high priest and the chief priest and the elders and the scribes. So just, just imagine how rushed the scene is, okay? How rushed this whole trial is. And how that explains the way they were struggling to bring a credible case against Jesus. Verse 55 says, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking, seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. Now, they found none. That's interesting. But what's also interesting is now, now that they've arrested Jesus, brought him to trial, now they're going to go and look for testimonies against him. Now, the, 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 the law, what the law states is the council, what they get to do is investigate claims that people bring to the, to the council. Okay? So if when, it's when you have a testimony... The council will then gather and investigate that, that testimony. They don't have a testimony here. They arrest Jesus. 
assume he's guilty, and they're kind of like, testimony, anyone? Come forth and testify against Jesus. Everything is backwards. This is a, a gross miscarriage of justice. And nobody comes for it initially. Nobody has a credible testimony. And then later on comes people who are bringing false testimonies against Jesus. And when you look at Matthew's account, you can see these were people who were bribed. Just like, you know, they paid off Judas. They paid people off to give false testimonies, um, to say just all kinds of false things. But it says here, even their testimony did not agree. Verse 56. And then it looks like they had, a, they had also attempted to feed people what to say. In order to bring some coherence to this, because this is just nonsense. This is, this is going nuts. Verse 58 says, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Okay? Now, of course, if you recall the passage where Jesus says something like that, that's not what he said. He said, if you, destroy, if you destroy this temple, but what he meant was his body, I will rebuild it in three days, speaking to his resurrection. He didn't say, I will destroy the temple or the temple. But they lay out this charge against Jesus. Why? Because um, the, the destruction of the temple, desecration of the temple, is punishable by death. So naturally, they would bring this charge against him, hoping, hoping that that would stick and they can charge Jesus with the death penalty. But it says, even about this, their testimony didn't agree. Even about this, their testimony didn't agree. It's time to let this guy go. There's no case. But here's one very important point we have to draw from this, and that is, despite what is happening on the surface, despite the fact that the high priest and the chief priest and the scribes are on the judgment seat, they are not the ones in control. Okay, Mark is trying to show you, he's building this layers of narrative here to show you they are nowhere near being in control. They had no control over the timing of this, the witnesses, the testimonies against Jesus. Nothing is going according to their plan. Why is Mark highlighting this? To remind us this trial is occurring not by the will of man, but by the will of God. Okay? This trial is happening under God's control, under the deliberate obedience of Jesus to God's will. Okay? I remember from the very first chapter of Mark, okay, Jesus was presented to us as the Messiah prophesied about in Isaiah. He is a suffering servant who's going to come and be the substitute lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He will make God's righteous judgment pass over those who put their faith in him, just as it passed over the Israelites who put the blood, on the, blood of the lamb on their doorpost and, and put their faith in God's provision. And then in, in Mark chapters 8, 9, 10, time and time again, Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of man, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. He's been saying this all along. And just before this trial, at his arrest, remember what he said? I'm here to fulfill the scriptures. Put down your sword. Okay. He's saying all of this, ever since the Old Testament, this has been testified to you. All of this is so that I would intentionally, on purpose, fulfill the scriptures and be the Messiah for God's people. This is why everything that is happening is happening. All under God's control. All under Christ's control. And then he, he reiterates this by identifying himself in verse 62 by saying this. By saying first, the, this significant thing he says in verse 26 is, I am. 
Ego Eimi, the name that Yahweh had identified himself with in the burning bush. And, and he, said, he said this in different accounts, and John records a lot of these instances where Jesus says, I am, and, he's, and people pick up stones to, to throw at him and kill him because they understand I am is God's name. You shouldn't be going around claiming ego and me, and here he is doing just that. And then he adds on top of that, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And at that point, they go nuts. They tore their robes and... And they're like, what, what, else, what else do we need to hear? Let's put him to death right now. Why? Because they know very well what Jesus is saying. Jesus is referring to himself as a son of man prophesied about in Daniel chapter 7. The ancient of days who will come as a son of man and who will be given this everlasting dominion and an everlasting kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And Jesus is saying, I am that son of man. I am the ancient of days. I am your Lord. I am your God. I am your God. So do you see what's happening here, what we're looking at? Mark is going to great lengths here to show us all of this happened under God's perfect and meticulous control of history, and he is executing it here even through this trial. He put himself on trial. You think Jesus is losing here because he's on trial and they're on the judgment seat? No. This is part of his plan. He orchestrated this. The ancient of days orchestrated this. This is part of God's great salvation plan. Now, did the high priests freely put on this fake trial and freely choose to put Jesus to death? Yes, they, they, they were totally acting out of their own free will. That's true. But it's also true that God had authored all of this and orchestrated it all at the same time. It's, it's, it's as Joseph had described to his brothers who had betrayed him in Genesis chapter 50. Remember what he said? He says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. Okay? So in the same event where people were freely acting out of their evil wills, God was overarchingly working over that by his sovereign will. They go hand in hand. God's sovereignty and his authority, his decree, and our free will and our free choice and our free actions. They go hand in hand. It's a mystery, but that's what the Bible teaches us. In other words, even though you freely choose to do a great evil here against Christ, against the Son of Man, you are not outside of the bounds of God's sovereignty. It's all happening within his authority. That's what Mark is showing us. The Son of Man is here. The suffering servant is here to usher in God's everlasting dominion and kingdom all according to God's plan, even through this trial. And this is significant for us today as well because, see, if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, who's bringing an everlasting dominion and an everlasting kingdom into this world, then that means this king, he's a king that doesn't just rule over the Jews and Gentiles during this biblical times in ancient Palestine. He's going to rule over us. He's going to rule over you. He's going to rule over me. That's what everlasting means. It doesn't end, it doesn't expire, it doesn't change. That's what everlasting means. He's not simply saying, I am the king of the Jews and the Gentiles of the biblical times. He's saying to anyone who's hearing this, 
Even down to this day, he's saying, I am your everlasting king. I am the ancient of days still. So this is not something that we have to look at and think, oh, that this is archaic, this is outdated, this is no longer relevant to us today. Because what, we have the constitution and we have the federal government, we have the three branches. And we are subjects under the everlasting kingdom of Christ. The meaning of this hasn't changed. By definition, okay, Jesus' everlasting dominion, everlasting kingdom will outlast cultures, governments, civilizations, and ideologies. And it has. And, and you're witnesses to it right now in this very moment. You're catching a glimpse of that, glimpse of that continuing progression of God's kingdom through the hearing and preaching of God's word. And the fact that it still today has a profound effect on those who hear it. It's through the written word. Um, this is, this is going to make me sound more like the English major than I am, but Shakespeare had this belief that words give this perpetual life when it's written. So a subject that's written about would have this, this everlasting uh, presence, uh, at least in the, in the world where, where that person is read about. And he expresses this in this very famous sonnet, Sonnet 18, uh, where he says... Um, Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? And, and there's, a part, there's a part where he says, Thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest. And here's why. So long as men can breathe and eyes can see, so long lives this and this gives life to thee. Okay, so long as men can breathe and eyes can see, so long lives this, this sonnet. Okay, and this gives life to thee. So he believed in writing things down to give it perpetual life down to the future. Now, that's partially true of Jesus and all of the words of Scripture. But you know what the difference is? The difference between Shakespeare's sonnets and the apostles' testimonies? The beauty Shakespeare saw in this beloved, and we don't know who this is, but the beauty that Shakespeare witnessed and his lover doesn't have to apply to him. to us living in Atlanta, Georgia in 2020, it, it can have zero relevance, zero significance to us living here today. Much less all nations, all peoples, and all languages. Okay, that was true for Shakespeare. Good for him, right? And it ends with him. But what about the truth of the Son of Man? Can it be subjective? Can it be relative? Can it matter only for those who believe? We're not given that choice. Not when it says this is an everlasting kingdom for all nations, all peoples, and all languages. We don't have that choice. And here I have to go back to something C.S. Lewis said, his very well-known quote, where he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Okay. 
Now, there's a degree to which what the, what the high priest and the chief priest and the scribes are doing here in our passage today, in crucifying Jesus, is more rational than simply calling him a great moral teacher. They've made their decision. This is a demon-possessed man. They actually call Jesus that. You're possessed by demons. That's why you get to do these miracles and such. And they're out to kill him. And you can't have someone who's merely a man going out claiming these exclusive divine claims about himself. But see, you know what's irrational? Not reacting to this at all. Not making a decision about this and simply calling him in a nice guy, a nice moral teacher. That is the most irrational thing you can do. What is the third option? You fall at his feet and acknowledge him to be who he said he was, the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, the Messiah, the Lord. And that's the general reason why this matters to us today, because it pushes us towards a decision. Who is Christ to you? And that is really Mark's central question. Remember Jesus' question to Peter? Who do you say that I am? Right? That is the central question in the Gospel of Mark. Who do you say that I am? People say a lot of things about me, but what do you say that I am? And here we are. Here's Peter wrestling with that question. But let me get a little bit more specific now and go to the third point and talk about why this matters to us, not just in the general sense that we have to make a decision, but in the more specific sense. First, I want to show you how this matters to us because of the way it gives us assurance. And tied in with that is the second reason, and that is how this gives us his goodness. This gives us his assurance as well as his goodness. Now, it says here in verse 65, after condemning him to death, they spit on him, covered his face, and struck him, and the guards too received him with many blows. And that shows us, as, as Isaiah prophesied, Jesus is this silent sheep before its shearers, not opening his mouth, right? And, and this was so that he would ultimately end up at the cross, where he would ultimately stand trial before God and be judged by God. That's what we looked at in the passage in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why also that he could be our substitute lamb? Just as the lamb of God uh, was provided for the Israelites in Egypt for that, for that Passover feast, we have the lamb of God in Jesus Christ through whom the judgment of God passes over us. And so as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay. In other words, this trial was for us. That's why it matters to us. And see, this is also why, although Jesus had responded to the question of whether he is the Christ, and he says, I am, he didn't respond to all the charges brought against him. Right? Did you notice that? He says nothing. He stood silent. He stood silent before the charges as they were piling on him, responded to none of it. Why? And what does that mean for us? It means this, that if we believe that he is who he says he is, and we submit to him as our Lord and our King, then the immediate assurance, immediate assurance that this trial was for you, comes to you. The assurance that we will not be silent when we stand before the judgment throne of God. We will not be silent before the throne of God. Why not? Because Jesus stood silent and condemned for us. 
so that we might stand justified before God and be able to say in boldness and in confidence, I am righteous. I am justified. I am forgiven. And I have every right to walk right out of his trial. Why? Because Jesus stood trial for me. It's not by my performance, my life, my death, but by the faith in the one who lived and died for me. You have that assurance. You can have that assurance. And when you know that, here's what this means practically for you. It means your, your daily preoccupation and your, your constant, you know, dare I say, obsession with your own performance ends. This whole trial before the world ends. Because Jesus stood trial for you. You can step out of the dock. And this question, these series of questions, am I good enough? Am I praised enough? Have I performed enough? Do I have the pro- approval of others? Am I good looking enough? Am I attractive enough? Am I rich enough? All these questions cease. Because that's the world putting you on trial. All these things that make you incredibly anxious and sensitive to every little judgment. Right? Every little criticism Every little sense of guilt, shame, and rejection from people, you become free from all of that. Why? Because God, the ultimate judge, has pronounced you innocent. So who is to judge? If God says you are to go free, who is to condemn? Romans 8. Christ was willing to be rejected for you. How can you feel rejected? This great salvation was achieved for you before you played any part of it. So how? Can you ever undo its effects on you? It frees you with an incredibly, incredibly profound sense of assurance. Because you know, if this is true, if this happened, and this was for me, this is for you, then you are loved. You can know that you are loved not because of your goodness, but because of His. Not because you stood trial and you, and you prevailed. Jesus stood trial for you. Not because you were in control, but he was in control of all of redemptive history. And when you realize that, that will change you. That will mature you into his goodness and conform you to his goodness more and more. Why? Because of your love for him, your devotion to him. We become what we love. We become what we love. And that's why I say the second thing that's tied to this assurance is you acquire the goodness of Christ. The goodness, your goodness doesn't achieve salvation. It doesn't bring you salvation. But once you rest in the assurance you have through the goodness of Christ alone, by faith alone and grace alone, you will conform to his goodness as as a byproduct of that, as a fruit of that. Because you will become what you love. And and, and you will be good in the most non-self-righteous, non-self-congratulatory way as you represent his goodness. Why? Because you know you're saved by grace and not by works. You're no better than any others. That's not why you are good, but you're made good by the goodness of Christ. So the grace of Christ is the only thing, the only thing in your life that will make you good without making you proud. The grace of God is the only thing that can make you good without making you proud. Otherwise, it's all about, I'm just, I'm just a teeny bit better than, than those people. Only the grace of Christ gives us goodness without pride. So remember what Jesus said to his disciples. He said this, You did not choose me. 
I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Remember that? See, he didn't ask us to go bear fruit first, and based on how much fruit you bear, I'll choose you. He didn't say that. He says, I, I've chosen you. And, and as Paul says in Ephesians, in love he predestined us. And because he has done so, we go and bear fruit for his glory. Not out of some fear of punishment or some selfish desire for reward, but all out of love for the one who loved us freely. Know this love. Know this goodness. And know the true extent of this grace manifested in Jesus' life, his biography. And as you press into his story, his love, his goodness, his grace will begin to manifest in your life, in your tiny slice of history. And you will do it not for your sake, not for your name, not for your recognition, as the world does, but all for the sake of his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How do we do that? By being completely transformed and captivated by the love and goodness and grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's why what he did 2,000 years ago, the trial that he stood 2,000 years ago, matters to us today. Because it happened. Because it happened for us. And because when we realize that it happened for us, it will change us to be like him, even in the here and now. So first trust him in that. Acknowledge him for who he says he is, and then go about obeying him. Trust and obey. That's the order. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being the one in control of our salvation all throughout history, from Genesis to Revelation and even to today. And Lord, we ask that you will open our eyes to see Jesus who stood trial for us, because for, for too long, Lord, we have put ourselves on trial before the world and before you, and that has caused too much anxiety, too much pain, too much burden on our shoulders. Would you open our eyes and our ears to hear him say to us, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will stand trial for you. I will justify you. I will call you righteous by, by being condemned to sin for you. Help us to see him. And as a result, help us to love him and worship him. And as we do so more and more, help us to become what we love and worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.